The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. If you can take your seats. We're going to go ahead and get started. Catherine's cleaning up the cookie, so there's no him this week. I texted Catherine last week as as I was looking over some material preparing for the class. I was reading about um, Robert Marsden, who was one of the early ministers in the OPC. He actually died uh, standing up to sing a hymn during Sunday school. So I told her we have to take this very seriously. It's not a light matter. Um, So we're continuing our look at American Presbyterianism and um, continuing particularly our look at the formation of the OPC. Um, today we're going to cover from about 1923 until as far as we can go, hopefully to 1936. Um, you remember the five years prior to 1923, you have World War I, um, which is a big event that impacts the church in a lot of ways, and the mindset of those um, impacted many in uh, wanting to seek more unification efforts. So you have this plan of organic union that's an attempt to bring together denominations in the United States into one big denomination. Um, You have Harry Emerson Fosdick, the Baptist preacher at First Presbyterian Church of New York City, who um, is a liberal and preaches this sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? That causes a big stir. Um, And then Machen, also that same year, published Christianity and Liberalism, which we um, talked about. There, I think there are a couple more copies out in the hall if anybody wanted a copy of that. Uh, and last week we had just started to talk about the Auburn Affirmation. So this happens in 1923, um, where um, after the General Assembly of 1923, uh, at, at which point the, um, the General Assembly had made this declaration that all candidates coming for ordination in the church needed to believe five fundamentals. Inerrancy of the scriptures, the virgin birth, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and the authenticity of Christ's miracles. So after that, that's in sometime in the summer of 1923, that December, a group of liberals in the church, uh, and again, these are um, theologic, theological liberals, not necessarily political liberals. Um, part of pointing that out is you know, this is the, the era of the progressive movement, which you know, we would think of probably as the, the liberal side um, politically in this era. On the conservative side, you have a man like Williams Jennings, William Jennings Bryan, who is an ardent progressive and one of the most well-known progressives of this era. Um, but he's, he's a, also a staunch theological conservative. Um, so liberal theology and liberal politics didn't necessarily go hand in hand. But the liberals um, from the church meet in Auburn, New York, where there's a little seminary, Auburn Seminary, uh, to prepare what became known as the Auburn Affirmation. Um, and to quote from, again, from Daryl Hart and John Meather, says, first, the Auburn Affirmation challenged the authority of the General Assembly's deliverance to proclaim certain doctrines as necessary and essential beliefs for Presbyterian ministers. So the, the point being made there is the 
first part of the Auburn Affirmation says um, the General Assembly doesn't have the authority to say on its own, candidates for the ministry have to believe these five fundamentals. Uh, and that was true. And the conservatives uh, agreed with that. It, it was an, not a correct way for the assembly to go about this because in Presbyterianism, in making these uh, theological decrees, the um, General Assembly would have to go then seek the consent of the Presbytery. So the General Assembly would vote on it and then distribute uh, that to the Presbyteries to also vote on as well, to change any kind of theological uh, declarations. <clears throat> so again, Hart and Meether, this was a constitutional point which many of the conservatives agreed and by itself was hardly a controversial claim. So if they had stopped at this and saying, hey, the General Assembly doesn't have the authority to, to require candidates to believe these things, whether or not that they're you know, correct things to, to believe, um, the Auburn Affirmation probably would have been fine, but they, they went on to then um, really attack these fundamental beliefs as well uh, and, and identify them as theories about the Bible and not things that the Bible teaches. So, for example, the Auburn Affirmation says, the doctrine of inerrancy, believing Scripture is inerrant without error, intended to enhance the authority of Scriptures in fact, impairs their supreme authority of faith and life and weakens the testimony of the church to the power of God unto salvation through Jesus Christ. So not only is a belief in inerrancy just this theory they're saying, they're saying it's a dangerous theory and, and we shouldn't require uh, ministers to believe this. Uh, Roger Nichols, who's a professor at Auburn Seminary, uh, defends this Auburn affirmation uh, on several bases. And one is, he looks back to the Adopting Act of 1729, which if you remember back from the beginning of the class, uh, was a, um, still a somewhat debated point as to what the, the Presbyterian Church in North America um, and was trying to say by making this Adopting Act. But he says the adop Adopting Act is kind of the original way of saying that the church is going to have uh, significant latitude on beliefs. He also looks at the 1869 reunion of the New and Old School, the 1906 reunion of the Cumberland Presbyterians with the Northern Church. And he says, look, all these things in our past have shown that we are a, a big church and we have a lot of latitude on things you can believe and so that um, these fundamentals are also things we should have latitude on. Within a year, about almost 1,300 ministers had signed on to the Auburn Affirmation, which is about 10% of the ministers in the church. It's a pretty significant impact. Uh, events like this occurring in the church were... Um, reported in, for example, the New York Times. You can actually go back to the New York Times archives if you're a subscriber and like, see the articles about these things. Um, and Machen uh, actually very quickly after the Auburn Affirmation sends a letter to the New York Times about it. Machen says, many of the signers of this declaration agree with Dr. Fosdick in being opposed not only to the creed of the Presbyterian Church, but to everything that is really distinctive of historical Christianity. The plain fact is that two mutually exclusive religions are being proclaimed in the pulpits of the Presbyterian Church. So Machen's making the same point he makes in Christianity and liberalism, that this view where if you can deny all these things about uh, the Bible and what Christians have historically taught, then you're not a Christian even at all. Uh, so at the General Assembly, uh, then in 1925... Uh, this is being uh, debated as well as I mentioned last week, there are two men who came for ordination in the Presbytery of New York who didn't affirm the virgin birth of Christ. Um, and uh, 
They didn't say they didn't believe it, but they were unwilling to say that they believed it. Uh, so that's being debated uh, along with the Auburn Affirmation. Charles Erdman, who's, um, again, a, in many ways a conservative in that he contributed to the, the fundamentals that we talked about last week. He was author of, I think, two of the fundamentals. Um, but he's very much a moderate in that he's unwilling to say those who disagree with him are wrong. Um, Charles Erdman's elected moderator of the assembly. Um, uh, Henry Sloan Coffin, who's president of Union Seminary in New York, which is where uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick um, was a professor, and then uh, Charles Briggs, who we talked about a few weeks back, was a professor, a very progressive seminary at the time and now. Um, he made it known to Erdman as the moderator and to the whole assembly that, hey, if you come down hard on the Presbytery of New York for dating these men for not believing in the virgin birth, and if you come down hard about the Auburn Affirmation, um, it's going to cause a schism and the liberals are going to leave the church, um, which Erdman, uh, that was kind of the worst thing in his mind to have any kind of division. Um, I think in Machen's mind, that probably would have solved the problems, but Erdman thought that was a bad thing. So um, Erdman kind of directs the assembly. The moderator doesn't you know, have all the power to, to decide what the assembly does, but Erdman kind of pushes the assembly instead of acting against the Presbytery of New York, um, he gets the assembly to establish a commission to study the present spiritual condition of our church and the causes making for unrest and to report to the next general assembly to the end that the purity, peace, unity, and progress of the church may be assured. So instead of dealing with these glaring issues that were happening, uh, he says, hey, let's do a study why people are unhappy and why they're causing unrest in the church. This committee was uh, 15 men appointed by the moderator, most of them theological moderates, um, including a man named Robert Speer, who was the secretary of the Board of Foreign Missions. Uh, I think he had been Machen's professor, maybe, but Machen, in his earlier years, had thought very highly of Speer, uh, but um, Speer at this time had become a very uh, aggressive moderate in the sense that he was just you know, peace at all costs. He was unwilling to stand up against liberalism, and there was a huge division between him and Machen. Machen was asked to testify to this commission, along with many others. Um, Machen said the reason for the discord in the church was modernism, or or liberalism, which is diametrically diametrically opposed to the constitution of our church and to the Christian religion. Um, So they interview all these uh, different men. They come up with a report. um, They uh, issue this report the next year. I'm going to quote here, Um, from Bradley Longfield, another historian of this era. He says, The report of the commission lists five major causes for dissension in the church. Intellectual movements, historical ecclesiastical differences, varying approaches to polity, theological developments, and misunderstanding. Note, none of those are, are liberalism or modernism. These included such items as the so-called conflict between science and religion, divisions rooted in the former old-school, new-school conflicts, and the lack of representation of women in the church, which is a quote from the the report, lack of representation of women in the church. Contrary to fundamentalist charges, the commission declared that it had discovered no radically liberal group in the church and admonished church members to cease all slander and misrepresentation. And the report goes on to blame... um, the misjudgments and unfair and untrue statements of conservatives as causing the conflict in the church. So Machen, and he's certainly not the only one, but Machen, 
Clarence McCartney, others in their uh, party are, are being blamed for causing division by their will- unwillingness to stand up against uh, the Auburn affirmationists and others who are saying things like, hey, we don't have to believe that the Bible is without error. Um, and, and the report is saying those conservatives are at fault for, for causing uh, these, these troubles. <coughs> the report says two controlling facts emerge. One is that the Presbyterian system admits of diversity of view where the core of truth is identical. Another is that the church has flourished best and showed most clearly the hand of God upon it when it laid aside its tendencies to stress these differences and put, aside, put the emphasis on the spirit of unity. Um, so the church is better off when we are willing to embrace our differences and not divide over them. Um, but the point that's really missed here is it says, admits a diversity of views where the core of truth is identical. And that's what Machen is fundamentally saying, is the core of truth is not identical here. We have people who don't believe, essentially, that the Bible is God's word. They don't believe in the miracles of the Bible. They don't believe in the divinity of Christ, potentially. Um, The core of truth is not the same here. And yet, uh, Erdman, um, Speer, J. Ross Stevenson, others, uh, kind of the moderate party are saying, hey, hey, no, we, we believe these things that you believe, Machen, but those on the progressive side, um, they're fine too. We don't, we don't need to, to question them at all. So this report ultimately um, says the concerns about unbiblical views of the Auburn Affirmation signers and, and the, the theological liberals was the cause for disunity in the church. Uh, there's another thing going on at the same time at Princeton Seminary, um, Machen, remember, last time Machen had become a professor of New Testament at the seminary. He was a New Testament scholar, but he is appointed by the board of directors of the seminary to be the chairman of the Department of Apologetics and Christian Ethics. Um, Because Princeton is, actually at the time, is the official seminary of the denomination, um, the way it was structured is these appointments then had to be approved by the General Assembly. Um, we don't have a denominational seminary in the OPC, but this is a kind of a common thing when you have a denominational seminary. The, the board maybe uh, votes on a new professor, a new appointment, and the, but the, the General Assembly has to approve it, uh, which is, you know, in theory, a good thing to provide checks and balances against what's being taught in your seminary. Often in the church at this point, it had been a formality for this to happen, but uh, with Machen, um, the... The, um, it became more than a formality. And two issues were raised about Machen at the General Assembly. Um, the first one was, uh, at this time, you have the uh, 18th Amendment to the Constitution. Who knows what the 18th Amendment is? Prohibition, right? So prohibition of alcohol. It says, within a year, no more sale of alcohol. Machen's presbytery, the presbytery of New Brunswick, had passed a resolution basically saying, we as a presbytery support um, the 18th Amendment and the enforcement of the 18th Amendment. Machen voted no against this. Um, and and it's, you know, there's a lot to unwrap there and all this happening, but um, Machen probably opposed the 18th Amendment, I would imagine, on his political views as a you know, very libertarian uh, character. But, but moreover, Machen's concern was this is not the place of a presbytery 
to be telling the federal government how to do its work. Um, the Westminster Confession, remember, says sentence and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with the civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition and extraordinary cases. Um, so the confession does um, leave open that there might be times when a church is to um, inform the government how they are to act. Um, a case that's often been the case in the last uh, 50 years has been over abortion, that churches have made statements about abortion and um, saying abortion should be outlawed uh, to the government. But Machen is saying this, this is not an extraordinary uh, case, extraordinary, as the confession says. It's inappropriate for the presbytery to be making a statement about prohibition and the enforcement of it. So Machen votes no. Uh, the church at this time is, is widely prohibitionist. Uh, it had been for uh, quite some time, actually, um, both in the north and the south. Um, my, my, uh, uh, great, my grandparents and great-grandparents who are Southern Presbyterian, um, my gran- grandfathers were Southern Presbyterian ministers, uh, very ardent um, teetotalers. My grandfather was a missionary in Korea used to, this would have been in the 1940s, he used to take Kool-Aid from the United States to Korea that they could use for uh, communion so they didn't have to use wine. So, um, But that was not an unusual perspective This in the 20s and, and for some time beyond. Um, yes, sir. Right. Right. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah. So Machen had the opportunity to explain himself, and he he didn't, for whatever reason, feel the need to explain himself. Um, and you can't have a, you know, a professor of. Christian ethics who supports alcohol, um, some would have thought. There's a second report that comes to the assembly that questions Machen's character. It famously claims, and this is a quote, uh, that Machen was temperamentally defective, bitter and harsh in his judgment of others, and implacable to those who did not agree with him. So um, Machen was temperamentally defective and and unfit uh, to serve in this role. Um, and in fact, these claims came from Machen's colleagues, his evangelical, supposedly conservative colleagues at the seminary, Charles Erdman and J. Ross Stevenson. Um, and, you know, this is true, right? There are, there are um, ways of dealing with things that are unbecoming of a Christian minister. Uh, the Bible says a lot about the character of, of officers in the church and the way Christians should um, uphold themselves. Um, and yet, I, th- I think the case can be made uh, though some have debated it, that um, essentially what this meant is people didn't like Machen saying your beliefs are not with accord with Scripture, not accord with our uh, confessional standards as Presbyterians, and, and you're wrong. They didn't ultimately like, didn't want Machen to say that, you know, according to God, you're wrong. Uh, and I think an example in Machen's defense um, 
uh, um, liberal Anglican minister named Norman Pittenger, um, who died in the 90s, uh, towards the end of his life, wrote, wrote some kind of memoir statement. And he talks about the time he spent at Princeton um, and how he had gotten to know Machen. And this is a minister who uh, apparently was one of the first um, ministers to um, affirm you know, homosexuality as being legitimate uh, for Christians and not sinful. So, you know, very, very progressive minister. He says, I got to know Machen personally. He was kind to me, polite and cooperative. I thought him a charming, vigorous, traditional, but kindly man. And then he says, I can only remember one somewhat biting comment he made. The reason liberal Protestants were so concerned with ethics or how Christians should behave to the exclusion of deep theological interest was that they had nothing much else to believe in. Um, so, you know, the one thing that he was offended by is Machen saying, you know, the reason you liberals talk so much about how Christians should act It's because you don't believe anything else about Christianity is true. Um, And, you know, I I think there are a number of other statements on Machen's defense uh, that make it seem like Machen was a a friendly, godly, uh, warm man, but people didn't like that he was willing to stand up against the liberalism of this era. And that was heartbreaking to Machen. I don't have the quote. I found another quote yesterday, which Machen says, look, I, I, I love being able to have relationships, even with those who disagree with me. Uh, he's, he's willing to be friendly to people, but he also says we have to stand firm uh, for God's word. So the, the General Assembly of that year, instead of approving Machen's appointment as kind of a rubber stamping, defers making a uh, decision about that and is going to appoint another committee, a, p- a committee to study the conflict that's going on at Princeton Seminary. So there had been a committee to study conflict in the church, and now a committee to study what's going on at the seminary. Um, the majority of the faculty at Princeton at this time, like Machen, were um, seeking to pervert, preserve the confessional old-school Presbyterianism that the, the seminary had stood for. On the other side, you have J. Ross Stevenson, who I think had become president at this point, um, who was one of the main supporters of, of organic union of the church with other American denominations, as well as Charles Erdman, um, they were uh, of this moderate party. Erdman says, um, ministers are to be gentle, sweetly reasonable, eager to show forbearance, and kindly considerate. He must not be contentious or quarrelsome, even, even as to matters of doctrine. So you can see Ma- Erdman is quoting scripture and putting together pieces of scripture there that uh, a minister is to present himself in a certain way. Um, and minister is to be uh, gentle and... Um, Know, seeking peace with others, but Erdman says, even as to matters of doctrine, um, so that you know, we can't, we can believe our you know, conservative theological views, but we can't force those views on others, even in our own church. Um, they were willing to speak against liberalism, Erdman and, and Stevenson and others, but they did not believe liberalism to be present in the church in any significant way, despite the Auburn Affirmation and, and other things. Um, for the, the moderate standing out uh, against others in the church was not as important again as evangelism and outreach and um, the disunity caused by fighting about things uh, like these fundamentals was uh, not worth the, the, the strife it would cause in the church. So this committee studying the conflict at Princeton comes back and tells the assembly 
the issue isn't primarily theological, but organizational. Um, Princeton at that point had two boards, the board of directors, which appointed Machen, which was primarily these old school conservatives. And then it had another board, um, the board of directors, who was uh, more moderates. And this report essentially says, we can fix this problem by combining these boards into one and kind of restructuring how, how the school is run. Um, and the assembly um, uh, votes in favor of that and, and puts that in motion. Machen believes, and other conservatives believes, not only was that a wrong thing to do, but it was actually uh, in violation of the constitution of the church, that this was uh, illegally, uh, even according to civil law, something that was illegal to be done. Uh, Machen pays an attorney to help write up a letter explaining that. His brother, who's an attorney and a member of the Southern Presbyterian Church, helps him as well. But despite these objections, in 1929, the board is reorganized, seminaries reorganized. Uh, and among other issues, the board has two men on it who are signers of the Auburn Affirmation, uh, which was kind of the final straw for Machen, that um, I, I can't be part of a seminary where we have these men who don't believe things like an inerrancy of scripture on our board. Uh, so Machen, at that time, decides that it's his, his time to leave the the, uh, the seminary. Um, so later that summer, uh, after the General Assembly of 1929, or I guess after the reorganization, whenever that occurs, in 1929, uh, Machen and others um, go to Philadelphia, um, which is not, it's uh, you know, 60 miles or so from Princeton, not real far from Princeton, and they go to Philadelphia to start a new seminary called Westminster Theological Seminary, which is still in the Philadelphia area today. Um, the seminary is explicitly attempting to continue the old, old school uh, theology of Princeton, uh, shared by Hodge and Warfield and many others before them. Machen says, it's a seminary not on the foundation of equivocation and compromise, but on an honest foundation of devotion to God's word. And to maintain the same prin- principles that old Princeton maintained, that the Christian religion as set forth in the confession of faith of the Presbyterian Church is true. So we're going to have a seminary that teaches that our confession as a church is true. I think it's worth stepping back and looking at Machen here. Um, Machen is one of many conservatives. He's one of many voices of this era. Uh, But Machen is this independently wealthy bachelor um, who spends his summers in Bar Harbor, um, who loves to go on bike rides and go to football games. He likes to go to Europe to to climb mountains. Um, He likes to play checkers. Uh, Machen is a man who could have just lived a very comfortable life uh, as a professor at Princeton Seminary. Um, he probably would have lived much longer. We're going to find out he dies in January of 1937, just a few years after this. Uh, he probably could have lived much longer um, and just had a peaceful life teaching Greek, um, doing his thing. Um, but Machen decided that it was his obligation to stand firm for Christ and his word, um, and that otherwise Christianity was, was pointless, uh, which is... You know, again, the, the thrust of his book, Christianity, Christianity and Liberalism, from uh, six or seven years prior. He says in Christianity and Liberalism, the type of religion which rejoices in the pious sounds of traditional phrases, regardless of their meetings, or shrinks from controversial matters, will never stand amid the shocks of life. Um, Christianity which rejoices in the pious sounds of, of traditional phrases, which you know, I think if you go into... Most of the mainline churches around here today, that's going to be what you're going to hear. Uh, Machen was joined by several other faculty from Princeton, uh, Oswald Alice, Robert Dick Wilson, 
and Cornelius Van Til, um, and then several other um, young men, I think, who had all been Princeton students, Ned Stonehouse, Alan McRae, Paul Woolley, and R.B. Kuyper. I would love to go in to talk about all these men, uh, but time doesn't permit that. Um, Oswald Alice was independently wealthy. He owned property in Center City, Philadelphia, right downtown Philadelphia, uh, that initially he allowed the seminary um, to meet in his properties. Uh, Machen really thought the seminary should be in that urban area, although soon after Machen dies, the seminary moves out to where it is now in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. Um, uh, kind of in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Uh, most of these men were very young. Paul, Paul Woolley, um, Alan McRae, Ned Stonehouse were 27. Cornelius Van Til was 34. R.B. Kuyper was 33. Machen was a little older at 48. Uh, there's one who stands out, though, uh, really. I guess Oswald Alice was a little older, but one who really stands out was Robert Dick Wilson, who I want to talk about just very briefly because I, I think he's underappreciated um, for his contributions. Um, there were other conservative faculty at Princeton, most notably uh, Gerhardus Voss, who's very, very influential on the theology of, of our church, the Shiloh as well as the OPC, uh, who didn't leave Princeton in this era. Gerhardus Voss was also fairly old. Um, and I don't know if anybody knows exactly why he didn't leave, but probably one of the reasons was if he left, he would lose his pension. And he was on, on the brink of retirement, and um, he would be walking away from the money he needed for retirement. Uh, Robert Dick Wilson, for whatever reason, uh, decided that he needed to stand with Machen and, and for Scripture, for the confession, uh, for the inerrancy of Scripture, um, and Machen, uh, Robert Dick Wilson, at age 73, leaves his job at Princeton Seminary, where he had taught for many, many years. He'd been Machen's professor of Old Testament uh, at the seminary, and that would have been uh, 20, 25 years prior to this. Um, so Robert Dick Wilson, he was an expert in the Old Testament, and his, the thrust of his career was championing, championing champion of the reliability of the Hebrew scriptures against the challenges of higher criticism uh, that were coming out of Germany and then out of the United States. And to that effort of defending scripture, Robert Dick Wilson had learned 45 languages, uh, which he he is reported to have known well. Um, And one thing he did was he learned every language into which the Bible was translated before 600 AD um, so that he could study study the Bible and defend it. Um, so he left, you know, everything behind to go with Machen to start Westminster. And then he teaches for a year, the first year there. The second year he, he wants to teach. He's, he's too weak and he dies at age 74. Um, but I think an incredible man that uh, doesn't get remembered enough. Uh, something else, this, this is um, August, September of 1929 uh, that Westminster Seminary started. Something else significant in our country happens a couple months later, anybody know? Late 1929, Great Depression, right? So the stock market crashes. Um, here's a brand new seminary without a big endowment, uh, and, and the country's in you know, one of the worst economic situations it's ever seen. Um, Machen, who's wealthy, helps fund the seminary out of his own pocket. His mother also contributes a lot as well. I think his, his father, who is much older, died at this point. Uh, and many others went, went on to support the seminary. But um, Westminster starts at a, a difficult time and yet is able to persevere through that. Okay, so, but 
you know, a new seminary started, an independent seminary, but Machen and others, all these conservatives, are still members of, um, most of them of the PCUSA. I think a, a couple of them are Christian Reformed uh, still at this time, the Dutch church. Um, and over the next few years, all those events, the events of the next few years are going to lead up to the formation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. That starts in 1930 when John D. Rockefeller Jr., who we talked about last week, because he's the one who builds Riverside Church, this enormous 400-foot-tall church in New York City for uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick uh, to have a Baptist church after he leaves leaves First Presbyterian Church of New New York City. So John D. Rockefeller, extremely wealthy, son son of John D. Rockefeller, the... um, and uh, very wealthy. Um, he's also a liberal Baptist. He financially backs this ecumenical study of Protestant foreign missions. Um, it's led by a man, I think, named Robert Hawking, who's uh, a liberal congregationalist and a professor of, I think, philosophy at Harvard. Um, and they, Hawking writes this report on behalf of the committee um, two years later, 1932, called Rethinking Missions, a Layman's Inquiry After 100 Years. Anytime something in the church happens that starts with re, you know it's bad news. Um, the PCUSA is going to have another big thing in the, in the uh, 90s called Rethinking God. Um, probably some, some people were around to remember that. Um, even worse news. But Rethinking Missions, a layman's inquiry. The report says that Protestant missions need to move away from the exclusive claims of Christianity and work hand-in-hand hand with other religions. The primary goal of missions was promoting world understanding on a spiritual level. Um, the issue here, you know, among the, you know, the, the, the problematic theology was this was, it was kind of independently done, but they brought different church mission boards together to work uh, together on this effort. So it, even though it was independent, it kind of appeared to be coming from all these churches, including the PCUSA. Um, Clarence McCartney, who's this conservative in Philadelphia we've talked about, he thought this was a good report in the sense that it uncovers the face of modernism in the church. Uh, Machen, as you might imagine, was not impressed. Um, He says it depreciates the distinction between Christians and non-Christians. It belittles the Bible and invades against Christian doctrine. It dismisses the doctrine of eternal punishment as a doctrine antiquated even in Christendom. It presents Jesus as the great religious teacher and example as Christianity's highest expression of religious life, but certainly not as the very God of very God. It belittles evangelism, um, substitutes the dissemination of spiritual influence and the permeation, this is a quote from the report, the dissemination of spiritual influence and the permeation of community with Christian ideals and principles for the new birth. Um, So again, Machen, this is right in Machen's framework. This is not Christianity, this is liberalism. Uh, even Robert Speer, who's the head of, of foreign missions for the PCUSA, general secretary, um, he's uncomfortable with this, um, but he also wants to be seen as a team player. Um, so he, he kind of weasels his way into saying, well, there's some things that are wrong with it, but on, you know, on the whole, it's good. Um, but this raised the attention of uh, a famous missionary from the PCUSA in China named Pearl Buck. Um, she would go on later to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. Um, and she was a liberal. Pearl, Pearl Buck was, was a, a liberal sent by the PCUSA as a missionary to China. Um, 
She says, I think this is the only book I have ever read which seems to me literally true in every observation and right in every conclusion. If Christians take this book seriously at all, I foresee possibly the greatest missionary impetus that we have known for centuries. What I do not see, what possibilities for showing forth Christ at last as he truly is to the world. The the quote goes on. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but um, Pearlbach says this is great. Uh, This is a report which does away with all these antiquated parts of Christianity and says, you know, Christianity is about sharing this Christian community uh, with the world and and learning from others, but we're not going to enforce our, we're not going to force our views on, on those who we go as missionaries to. Um, Pearlbach says, let the spread of Christianity, above all, let the spread of Christianity, sorry, let the spirit of Christ be rather by mode of life than preaching. I am weary unto death with this incessant preaching. It deadens all thought. It confuses all issues. Um, Pearlbach says elsewhere, just, you know, so you know more of her theology. I do not believe in original sin. I agree with the Chinese who feel their people should be protected from such superstition. Um, so Pearlbuck says this report is great. She, she really likes it. Uh, Machen sends an overture to the General Assembly. That's kind of a, a request for the General Assembly to act uh, in 1933 um, that offends a lot of people, including Robert Speer. It says, you know, we should only elect to our Board of Foreign Missions those who will send missionaries who believe the Bible and will send missionaries who believe the Bible. Um, and we should inst- instruct our General Secretary, that's Robert Speer, to make sure our missionaries believe the Bible. Machen's overture is voted down, and when Robert Speer rises at the assembly um, to give his report as uh, Secretary of Foreign Missions, he receives a standing ovation. Um, so the, the assembly is showing their support of Speer against Machen. When the General Assembly um, fails to fix these problems with the missions board, uh, Machen, in the summer of 1933, announces a meeting to form what's called the Independent Board of Foreign Missions. Uh, so Machen and other conservatives are going to say, we can't support our uh, foreign mission board that's going to send missionaries like Pearl Buck, who don't believe the Bible and don't preach the gospel. Um, and uh, we're going we're gonna to have a, a separate mission board outside of the church, and we're going to send our own missionaries. Uh, that started with uh, 15 ministers, five ruling elders, and five women uh, who served on the board. Um, Machen is elected president of this board, and um, it, I, some amount of missionaries, and I don't know the statistics, but some missionaries leave the oversight of the PCUSA, and they become missionaries of this independent board of foreign missions. Uh, some in Machen's presbytery immediately try to change the rules of ordination to require ministers to vow to support the boards and agencies of the church. Um, So if you're going to come be a minister in our presbytery, you have to say, I support the boards and agencies of this church, obviously including the Board of Foreign Missions. Uh, Machen files a protest against this. He thinks that's illegitimate. He also tries to transfer to the Presbytery of Philadelphia from New Brunswick, um, uh, which would, like the Princeton Seminary area, he tries to move into Philadelphia, which was a more conservative presbytery. That was actually approved and then rescinded due to a technicality that was um, probably just mostly an attempt to, to keep Machen around so they could give him a hard time. Um, 
1934 General Assembly, so a year after the, the Independent Board is formed, um, the, the General Assembly um, says that it issues this statement saying that um, not supporting the boards of a church is like a Christian coming into church and not partaking of the Lord's Supper. You're, you're separating yourself from the church in an illegitimate way. The assembly called on the Independent Board of Foreign Missions to cease and for all ministers in the PCUSA to sever, sever ties with it. Somewhat ironically, the same assembly also commends the German church. This is 1934. Commends the German church for standing up to the Nazi influence in the church. Um, and yet at the same, is saying, you know, Machen, you may not stand up to anything in our church, but good on the Germans. Um, so a little hypocritical, it seems. Machen um, is un- unable to consent to this. He says, I cannot obey the order. Obedience to the order, that, and the order is to stand down from the independent board and to basically uh, step away from it or close it. Obedience to the order in the way demanded by the General Assembly would involve support of a propaganda that is contrary to the gospel of Christ. Obedience to the order in a way demanded by the General Assembly would involve substitution of a human authority for the authority of the word of God. And he backs that up with an 80-page report that he uh, sends to his presbytery about how this action of the General Assembly is unconstitutional. Machen's a very, very prolific writer. Uh, You know, when things happen, you hear, like, this thing happens, Machen disagrees with, and he writes 100 pages about it or something. Um, So later that year, December 1924, Machen's charged by the Presbytery of New Brunswick with violation of his ordination vows with disapproving of the government and discipline of the church, with renouncing and disobeying the rules and lawful authority of the church, with advocating rebellious defiance against the lawful authority of the church, with refusal to sever his connection with the independent board, with not being zealous and faithful in maintaining the peace of the church, with contempt and rebellion against his superiors, with breach of his lawful promises, with refusing subjection to the brethren and the Lord. Uh, so th- those are his charges in 1934. He's tried then in February and March 1935. Um, that pre- that um, trial, according at least to those in you know, Machen's party, was uh, very unfairly done. He, Machen wasn't given a fair hearing. Um, and he was, he was convicted uh, by that trial. Also, one of the other things the conservatives objected to, the moderator over the meeting during the trial was a signer of the Auburn Affirmation. So... Um, kind of coming in almost undoubtedly biased against Machen. Um, so in March 29th of 1935, Machen suspended from ministry of the PCUSA. Um, and he appeals that to uh, the General Assembly, which takes another year before that, that happens. But in the summer of 1935, Machen and others form what's called the Constitutional Covenant Union. Um, so this is a group, they say, to defend and maintain the constitution of the PCUSA, that is, to defend the word of God, which the constitution is based, the full and glorious system of revealed truth contained in the confession of faith and catechisms, the truly scriptural principles of a Presbyterian church government, and it goes on from there. Um, but this, is, this group is what a year later is going to kind of morph into the OPC. So Machen appeals to the General Assembly. They uphold the ruling against Machen, uh, the next summer in June of 1936. Uh, Machen isn't the only minister to be tried in such a way. I mean, Machen is, is the most known, uh, well-known of these cases, but 
Um, there are others who are tried. There's a young Princeton Seminary graduate who's out for ordination in the Presbytery of San Francisco in 1935 um, named E.J. Young, who will go on to replace Robert Dick Wilson as a professor at Princeton Seminary. And there's um, uh, an article that was written in the conservative Presbyterian magazine uh, this time about E.J. Young's ordination. and talks about some of the questions he faced. Uh, Do you promise to study the unity and peace of the church? E.J. Young says, I will study the peace, unity, and purity of the church. Will you promise to be subject to your brethren? E.J. Young, I will be subject to my brethren in the Lord. If you minister and have a charge of a church, will you inform the people that you think the church is disloyal? E.J. Young, we are not Romanists. We do not keep the people in ignorance. Do you think the professors of the seminary, that's um, the Presbyterian Seminary in San Francisco, are not sincere and honest men? This is the best answer. E.J. Young, I think they are sincere, but I think some of them are sincerely wrong. Um, Donald Barnhouse also, he's the the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, uh, now a prominent PCA church. He doesn't go into the PCUSA, I mean, sorry, into the OPC. He's not even a supporter of Westminster Seminary, uh, but he's tried and admonished by his presbytery um, for violating the Ninth Commandment, for saying things, among other things, uh, saying he'd rather die than allow a liberal to preach at his church. Um, So those are just a couple examples, but this is going on all across the country uh, where those who support Machen, those who support the Confession, those who stand for Scripture are being attacked by their presbyteries. So Machen's um, um, ruling is upheld against Machen, um, summer of 1936. On June 11, 1936, uh, the first General Assembly of a church called the Presbyterian Church of America, not OPC, but at the time Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA now is Presbyterian Church in America, um, is called to order at a meeting of this Constitutional Covenant Union, which had been formed a year prior. Machen says, what a joyous moment it was. How the long years of struggle seemed to sink into nothingness compared with the peace and joy that filled our hearts. We became members at last of a true Presbyterian church. It started that first meeting with 34 ministers, 17 ruling elders. Within a couple months, there were 75 ministers, uh, and and they created nine presbyteries around the country. Um, I think it's again interesting to note the average age of the um, ministers at this initial meeting was 34. Uh, there were a lot of young men who were willing to stand up uh, at this time and, and stand with Machen. Machen's going to be elected the uh, moderator of that first General Assembly. <clears throat> um, and then we'll pick up there next time to see what happens in those first few years of the church. Um, I'm a couple minutes over. If you need to go pick up your kids, go do that. I do want to mention, before I conclude, um, the OPC has, uh, the General Assembly has a committee of the historian. Uh, the OPC has gone to great lengths to preserve and write about its history. Um, the, the historian of the committee just changed to Camden Busey. If you've ever listened to the Reform Forum podcast, Camden Busey's the founder and host of that. Uh, he's the historian of the OPC, a minister in Illinois. Um, but over the years, the OPC's published a number of books from this committee. And I wanted to recommend a couple. And you can um, buy these on the OPC website. If people are interested, we could order some from the church and you could reimburse us if we can save on shipping. If you want to email me if you're interested. But I, I wanted to commend a few. Um, 
One is, this is by Daryl Hart and John Meather also, Fighting the Good Fight, A Brief History of the OPC. Everybody should read this book. It's not very long, uh, 200 pages, but it's a small book too, um, that, that looks through this history that we're talking about. Um, and then talks about the history up through, um, I don't know, what era? Uh, the 80s maybe. Um, really good book. Uh, this one that came out recently, For Me to Live is Christ. It's a biography of E.J. Young, who I just talked about, this minister out in San Francisco. Uh, also just an extraordinary man. Uh, his son retired as a professor at Calvin College and went on to write this book about his father. Um, he was an Old Testament scholar as well. Um, and just a, a really exceptional man, really extraordinary wife as well who, who stood with him, uh, stood faithful, wanting to be part of, part of a faithful Reformed church. Uh, one of my favorite biographies I've ever read. Um, and then this one, you know, this class obviously, um, you know, as we talk about people, is mostly about men. And, and I think for good reason that as we talk about church leadership, um, that's, that's who gets discussed in a history like this. Um, but there have been a, l- a lot of, you know, exceptional women in the OPC as well. And um, this book was published a couple years ago called Choosing the Good Portion, Women of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church that has biographies of maybe 50 women, short biographies, a few pages, um, starting with Machen's mother, who wasn't in the OPC, but as we talked about, was a, an extraordinary woman. Um, and uh, it's, just a, it's a really neat book, and I, I think would be an encouragement to, to everyone uh, and, and worth picking up. So uh, choosing the good portion. Um, so I would really commend all of these to everyone to read these.